Today's scripture reading is from Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes, like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. 
The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we pause again before you, um, just in some ways remembering that we are in your presence, that you promise to draw near to us whenever we come to you in the name of your Son, that you are one who speaks to us. And so that's what we ask for right now, that you would speak to us in such a way that you would open our eyes to what is most truly true, that you would turn our gaze that we might see Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, um, we, uh, when we were looking at Daniel 5, I mentioned this book by Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, which I find really interesting. And it's, it talks about how our brain works. And one of the things that he highlights is though our brains are amazing, they have certain biases, certain mistakes that we repeatedly make oftentimes without even realizing. It's just kind of like a, a blind spot, you might say. And one of those biases he names the what you see is all there is bias. The what you see is all there is. That is, that we tend to make conclusions, we make judgments with the assumption that we have all of the relevant information before us even when we don't. So one example of this, uh, during World War II, the military was consulting with one particular statistician to try to think through how to reinforce airplanes so that they would be able to come back from combat even after they were shot. And they took a survey of pretty much all of the airplanes that had survived combat, and they noticed where all of like, the bullets were, or the bullet holes. You know, you had some places in the wings, some in the tails. And so at first they drew the conclusion that that's where they should put all of the armor, those places that seemed to keep on getting hit. But the statistician says that's exactly the wrong way of thinking of it. What you need to know is where the planes that got shot down were hit. You're only looking at one portion of the information. In fact, honestly, if they're able to fly back, then that's not the area that you need to put armor on. It's, it's the part that didn't get hit that's probably most vulnerable. The point is they were thinking that the information they had in front of them was all that they needed, not realizing that there's a whole subset of information that is the crashed planes that are very important. They thought what you see is all there is. We actually make that mistake frequently. Um, probably one of the most common examples of this many of us have experienced. Have you ever had it when like two of your friends have been in some sort of argument? And then one of your friends talks to you about it, and they're, you know, like they're filled with emotion, there's passion, and yet they're reasonable. And as you're listening and just kind of trying to reassure them, it is clear to you that, that though oftentimes arguments are kind of two-sided, this one, your friend clearly is in the right, and the other one's clearly in the wrong. And then you talk to that other person. And suddenly you realize, wait a second, this is actually much more complicated than I thought. There are two sides to this. See, what your brain did, because we naturally do this, is have a what you see is all there is. We see one part of the information, and in that moment we feel like we have enough to make a judgment. But we need to ask ourselves, what don't we see? And, and what Kahneman demonstrates is that we do this again and again. Our brain likes to jump to conclusions. It assumes that what we see is all we need to see to be able to understand things throughout our day, day in and day out. 
as you and I worry about things, as we make plans, as we set hopes, we make these decisions with the assumption in the back of our minds that what's before us, that what we can notice is all that we need to recognize to be able to judge wisely. And the book of Daniel is written to change us in that regard. So, in some ways, these last six chapters have been kind of examples of the problems of what you see is all there is thinking. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, he is making these decisions like, I am going to unify the whole known world to me by having a, an idol that everyone can worship because I can do that. He looks at Babylon and says, look at the city that I've made. And, and the reason he can say those things is because all he sees is his awesomeness. He sees his success. He sees people saying, you're so great. What he sees is all there is from his perspective. Uh, we see the same mistake being made by Belshazzar when he decides to have a feast because he thinks he's great. We see the same mistake being made by those rivals of Daniel who decides that they're going to try to bring Daniel down. They're all operating with what you see is all there is thinking. And yet in each of these stories, each of these moments, we have this moment of revelation where another whole dimension of reality that was unseen kind of breaks through. Or, or like I said a couple weeks ago, it's like if you've seen Doctor Strange, those circles that kind of open up and suddenly you see this other dimension. There's moments in each of these stories where another Reality that's normally invisible, the reality that we sometimes call spiritual or heavenly, where there are demons and angels and God, we see these brief glimpses that there is something more than what we normally see. We have moments where an angelic figure stands with three men in a furnace who remain untouched. We have another moment where an angel keeps a lion's mouth cut, uh, shut in the middle of a cave. We have moments where Nebuchadnezzar is somehow brought to becoming like an animal and then being brought back up, we have moments where a disembodied hand pronounces the doom of Belshazzar. These brief moments invite us to recognize that there is a deep flaw in what you see is all there is because there is something more. And chapter 7 brings us, in some ways, to the next stage of this process of opening our minds to what we normally don't see. So I don't know if you've noticed this, but to this point, if we're honest, Daniel, by literary standards, is a kind of flat character. I mean, he's... He's kind of a one note. He always does things right, right? Like, you know, he, you know he's, he's, he's stable. He makes the right decision. He knows how to interpret dreams. He prays regularly. All of that is good and we admire him, but we don't understand him. He's kind of removed from us. We're never told when he's supposed to interpret the dream, is he overwhelmed? When he's in the, the, the cave with the lions, is he afraid? We don't know what it's like to be Daniel. He's kind of this removed figure for us until chapter 7. Perhaps you noticed in the opening verses of our passage, after kind of a preface, Daniel begins speaking. And from this point onwards, from 7 on, it is told in the first person, we get to see life through Daniel's eyes. <laughs> it's kind of trippy. I mean, it's, 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 he is another, he is a unique individual. Chapter 1 told us that, that Daniel was gifted uniquely with, with the ability to understand visions and dreams. 
And, and only now, as we begin in chapter 7 and continue on, do we realize what that looks like. That Daniel, in some ways, is seeing life differently from the rest of us. Have you ever heard of tetrochromacy? I had not until recently. Just quick background. Most of our eyes see colors with three sets of cones. If, if, if you only have two sets of cones, and some people, for the, that's true, that means you're colorblind. If you have three sets of cones, that means you can see colors like normal people. Well, some animals actually have four sets of chrome, uh, cones. That's tetra, that's the four, chromacy. That means they are able to see kinds of colors that human beings can't. But what I find especially interesting is there is a mutation where a subset of women, and it's only women, a subset of women have that fourth cone. And they've demonstrated that at least some of the time, some human beings with, who are tetrachrome, as we might call them, are able to see differences between colors that the rest of us can't. So like one artist who was tested genetically for this and shown to be, talked about how they could see in, in what looks to us like gray rocks, pinks and greens and things that the rest of us can't see. They're, they're seeing the world in another whole dimension of color, which is fascinating if you think about it. Well, Daniel is like that, except he's not just seeing another dimension of color. He is seeing another dimension of reality. I mean, for us, the, 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 the line between this physical reality and the spiritual with souls and angels and demons and gods it's, and God is, is kind of like a thick curtain. And, and maybe, maybe once or two, in our, two or times in our life, we might see a little bit of that curtain pulled back and, and we have just a glimpse of this other reality. For Daniel, that curtain is sheer. He, he, we find that he's regularly having visions where he is seeing this heavenly reality as real as the earth reality around us. He is seeing much more than we are. And beginning in chapter 7, rather than us looking through just these little windows and beginning to see and having glimpse, we are invited to see through Daniel's eyes. And we see just how big and how strange reality actually is. Because that is what happens. We are, we are beginning to be invited to see something that is beyond our ability to understand, that is so foreign that we can no longer describe what is being seen in normal prose, in normal kind of literary structure. The way that Daniel speaks is in symbols and images, pointing us to things that our minds can't fully comprehend. And that's what we see in chapter 7. We are being given a heavenly perspective on our reality to expand our way of seeing. And there are three scenes that we see in these verses. The first scene involves kingdoms. So the very, very, near the very end of our passage, it talks about these four beasts that at the beginning were four kings, or sometimes it can be described as four kingdoms. And if you've been with us, you might have recognized that really Daniel is spending a lot of time talking about kingdoms. Almost everything is happening within the court around the king. And it's important for us to understand that the focus here is not just talking about like some megalomaniac who is who's grabbing power. That, that kingdoms, and we could say this of, of all human governments, are, are in some ways humanity's attempt to experience shalom. Shalom is that Hebrew word that is oftentimes translated peace, but it means more than that. It's speaking of something bigger and fuller, of, of harmony, of, 
of prosperity, of security, of connection to each other. It is what we deeply long for. And yet it is not ever anything that we can experience individually. We, we must do it corporately. You can't have prosperity without an exchange of goods. You can't have security without mutual protection. You can't have connection without community. And so you need some form of order to be able to experience what our heart longs for. This is why even though many of us hate politics, we still involve ourselves to some degree in politics because we know that we need some overarching structure or some government so that we can experience that harmony and connection that we know we need. That's what Daniel is talking about when it's talking about kingdoms, when it's talking about rule, it's talking about this project that we're all engaged in to try to experience in this world the shalom we were made for. And in the book of Daniel, if you've been paying attention, there are two themes that we keep coming back to when it's talking about human kingdoms. One is that the human tendency is to try to pursue the shalom together entirely apart from God. That the human way of seeking to establish this unity is idolatrous. Remember chapter 3 where Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to bring people together so I'm going to give them this big golden image to worship. That's how we can get united. It is no accident that chapter 2 when you have the vision of four kingdoms, those four kingdoms are depicted as an idol. Because humanity, as we work together to pursue unity and order, we do it almost inevitably in a way where we try to erase God from the picture. That we see in Daniel. And secondly, we see in Daniel that these human efforts, even though we are pursuing something good by it, inevitably turn beastly. This is a theme, if you've been listening, that Nick keeps coming back to, that that when our hearts are idolatrous, that dehumanizes. When a kingdom is idolatrous, it dehumanizes. And it leads to things like we've seen, like Nebuchadnezzar, because he can't get his dream interpreted, wants to pull people limb from limb. When people aren't willing to bow down, he wants to throw them in the furnace, and someone's thrown into the lion's den because of a technicality. It's beastly. And that is what we are meant to see as our passage begins. When we have four kingdoms being depicted, what is used to symbolize them? What do we see from the heavenly perspective? Do we see mighty generals and their armies? No. Do we see massive architecture and beautiful cities to depict, uh, to depict kingdoms? No. What do we see to depict kingdoms? We see hideous, mutant-like beasts. Perhaps you notice it. You know, if, if you're looking at the passage... He, he talks, first you have a lion, but it's not just a lion, it's a lion with wings that are getting pulled off eventually. Then it gets even worse. You have a bear that, that has ribs still in its mouth and it's half standing. And then it gets even crazier because you have a leopard with four wings and four heads. And then it gets so gruesome that they can't even describe what kind of beast it is. All we know is it has lots of horns and one of the horns becomes something crazy and it has iron teeth. There is something beastly and, and disturbing and disordered and chaotic. And, and that's, that's the point. That these human enterprises that, that might at times seem impressive from a human perspective, seen from heaven, are inhumane. 
are chaotic are the very opposite of what they are pursuing. Because, as I said, when, when we turn from God, we become less human. I mean, that, our, our very essence of what we were made to be is people whose faces are turned towards God in worship. That's how we learn to love. That's how we learn to find purpose. The moment we move God from the picture, we lose something of our humanity, and it, and it turns beastly. And when a society does that collectively, it becomes corrupt. It becomes beastly. It does not work. Human enterprise of trying to pursue shalom apart from God will always fail. I was listening to um, a podcast recently where a person had pointed out that in some ways Christianity has been eclipsed in America, and it's increasingly that way. And he said people still are religious, it's just the religion that they are now pursuing is politics. That politics is what people are pursuing to try to make this thing right. Politics is their answer to moral anarchy of trying to, to make people agree on things. And it isn't working. It's not going to work. It's beastly. It's not that it's all the same. And perhaps you notice that you have four different creatures and and the first one actually is almost human-like. It's almost certainly a reference to Nebuchadnezzar. If you might remember that Nebuchadnezzar, he is brought down, but then he's brought up and he's given sanity and he worships God. And that's why it says we have someone that looks almost human. Other nations are like that disfigured one with teeth. But to the degree that any nation is idolatrous, it will not work. Which, which means we should have very realistic expectations when we just look at the world around us. It doesn't really matter what we're talking about. We could be talking about the Russian bear. We could talk about the American eagle. We could be talking about the donkey on the left. We could be talking about the elephant on the right. Any of them are going to not accomplish what we want because to the degree that they are not turned towards God, they will not accomplish shalom. That is what we see to begin with. We see, in some ways, an exercise in futility. Then we move to the second scene, and it becomes even clearer why these beasts can never bring about what we're longing for. It's, it's a very different, we move from hideous to unimaginably glorious. We are told in some ways that we are in some sort of cosmic court. It says the thrones, more than one throne is set in place. And then the ancient of days, which is almost certainly, it is certainly a reference to God the one who has always, always, always been. He is the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days takes his seat on the throne. And then after we have a couple of verses describing what this Ancient of Days looks like, we are told that the court is convened and the books are opened. And in a courtroom, books, very, clear, very specifically, are records. They are records of all that has transpired that will be used to bring judgment on what has been done. And so what we are seeing here is, is that there are records of all things. It, it might seem from an earthly perspective, that we're in a time where things remain hidden, we're in a time of chaos, we're in a time where might makes right, but, but from a heavenly perspective where we're seeing something bigger, we recognize that there are records being kept, 
and there is a day where there is a judge who will bring things to account. From a heavenly perspective, we know that there is a day when all will be made right. And notice what we see about this judge, this ancient of days. It says, first, that we recognize he is, he is true and without corruptions. It speaks of how his clothing is white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. White is a, a symbol of purity. We're in a day where it can be so frustrating because any person who has any degree of of praise in the eyes of people, you are just waiting until something comes up and you recognize there's a dark side about them. You just think about like Bill Cosby and once he was so revered and now how he's viewed. And it seems like that happens again and again. But here's what we're saying here. There is no dark side. There is no second note. Who God is is what he says he is all the way down without any taint, without any corruption. He is righteous and there is no injustice, there is no cruelty, he is good, there is no ugliness or evil, he is loving, there is no apathy, no matter how far you go, in him is no darkness at all. He is entirely trustworthy. He is pure. And what's more we see as we look at this ancient of days that he is the purifier. It speaks of how his throne was flaming with fire, and what's more, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Fire has kind of two different symbolic meanings. One is, is destruction, and that is clearly part of what it is here, that, that fire burns away all that is evil. We're told in a couple of verses that that fourth beast is thrown into the fire. This, this judge destroys all that is awful. All that is evil will be no more. But fire also has the element of purity and purification. So, so gold, which is tainted, is brought through fire and melted, and the impurities are removed away, and only what is good remains. And that, too, is part of what we're being told here. That the impurities, the, the ugliness of this world is removed, and only what is good and beautiful will remain. And finally, as we're seeing this heavenly throne room, we, we see that this judge is powerful. 10,000 times 10,000 stand before him, most certainly talking about angels. Try to imagine 100 million angels, just row upon row upon row, going as far as you can see, and then further, all around, fiery, standing, just waiting for a word, and they will do the Ancient of Days bidding. It is unimaginable. It is showing just how powerful this Ancient of Days is. What he says will happen, and no one can stand in the way. We have actually been seeing hints of that already. Even as the beasts are mentioned, do you notice that there are signs that they're not as in control as they think they are? It says that in, for the, of the first beast, what, it, what are we reminded of? It talks about how that a human mind was given to it. Who, who gave that first beast the human mind? And the second one, it is told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Who is the one who is telling that beast that they can do that? 
And the third one, it's talking about how this beast was given authority to rule. Again and again, we recognize that there is someone greater behind what looks so strong. Someone who permits people to rule for a time, but in the end is the one who decides. And we see here now that it is a judge who will make all things right. And what we are meant to see in this moment is that right now what we see is so much less than all there is. What we see right now is we are finding ourselves right now in this moment in a temporary time of chaos. Right now in this moment we are in a temporary time where it seems like those who are strongest get away with wrong, that what is hidden remains hidden and injustice prevails, but that is only for a time. There is a sovereign judge who is keeping record. There is one who stands over all and he has appointed a day when he will bring all things to judgment and all that is wrong will be removed and all that is unjust will be dealt with and all will be made right. That is what we see when we see beyond our reality to the fuller reality. And yet there is one more scene that we see here that I would say is probably the most extraordinary of the three. One of the, the true high points in all of the Old Testament. A question, I think, has been tacitly asked in these first two scenes combined. If, if we desire shalom, And shalom can only come as we come together, and yet every single human effort cannot accomplish that. Is there any hope for us? How can we be brought together to experience that unity, that prosperity, that security, that joy, if every kingdom fails? And if every kingdom must be judged in the end? And with that question we see here in the throne room, four kingdoms have been judged and found wanting But then a fifth king emerges. And the contrast is clear. Where the four creatures all came from the chaotic waters, this one comes with the clouds. Where the four creatures were mutants like beasts, this one is described as a son of man. He's one of us. Except not one of us because he hasn't in any way been tainted by idolatry. He has not in any way lost his humanity. He is humanity in its perfect form. And rather than opposing the ancient of days, he comes and is escorted into the presence of the ancient days to receive the judgment of the ancient of days. And here is what the ancient of days determines. That all authority will be given to this one. All authority, we might say, in heaven and on earth. And what's more, we're told that his kingdom will never, ever fail. His dominion will last forever. And what is probably the most extraordinary detail that we're told here is that we're told that the nations, he was given authority, glory, and power, and says, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. That should confuse us, I think, at first, unless we really understand what's going on here, because what was Nebuchadnezzar's failing? Nebuchadnezzar erected something to try to unite all nations and peoples in worshipping that, and it was wrong because you can only worship God and God alone, and yet now this one is being worshipped at the Ancient of Days' approval? 
Somehow we see in this person someone who is both one of us and yet one with God, so that when he is being worshipped, it is not removing worship from the Ancient of Days, but it is establishing the worship of the Ancient of Days. It is a mystery here. And yet what is clear, if we just take a moment and understand what is going on here, is all that the kingdoms were trying to accomplish apart from God now are being brought to fruition in and through God by the Son of Man. That the Son of Man is providing a security the kingdom will never end. A safety, a prosperity. The Son of Man is uniting people all in worship of God. The Son of Man is bringing about the, the perfect human kingdom that is also the kingdom of God that will never end. And if you are at all familiar with the New Testament... This should be setting off bells in your head. Because as we really think about what's going on here, we, I think, begin to understand why Jesus says, why Jesus' favorite name for himself is the Son of Man. He's saying, I am that person, the one who is the Son of God who became one of us, taking on human flesh. This is why we understand now when Jesus speaks, his gospel is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is saying the Son of Man came to establish the kingdom that no other king could do, and it's now. This is why it is so remarkable that Jesus will say the Son of Man, this glorious figure, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus says on the night before he goes to the cross, that he says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God. Remember, there's more than one throne. The Son of Man will be seated at the throne next to the Ancient of Days, and he sees the cross as his way to there. And this is why when Jesus rises from the dead, what does he say to his disciples? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go to the nations that they too might be my disciples. He is saying it has happened. The Son of Man has received the authority and dominion and all nations will worship. The kingdom of God is here. What we see in these moments in Daniel, if we just step back and try to understand what Daniel is showing us, is one of the most hopeful things in all of Scripture. That there is a way for us to the kingdom we are always meant to experience. There is a way for us to harmony with God and each other, and it comes through the Son of Man. There is a moment um, when Jesus is uh, walking on earth when he has just healed a blind man, and the blind man comes back to Jesus, and Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man who has been so overwhelmed by what has just taken place to him, says, who is he that I might believe in him? And Jesus says, you have seen him, and you are now talking to him. And the blind man who until a short while ago could see nothing but now could see so much more, says, I believe, and he worshiped him. 
And I want to suggest that is what I believe Jesus is seeking to do as he is speaking to us through these verses in this moment. He's inviting us to see so much more than we naturally see. To see that he is the son of God, the son of man in whom our hopes are found, that we might believe him and that we might worship him. And I would invite us even this moment to do that, to spend some time in silent prayer, worshiping both through acknowledging our sin, worshiping by placing our trust in Christ, just spending some time turning to him, and I will lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time. Would you please join with me in silent prayer?